Hello and welcome to season four, episode six of Unlimited Opinions. I'm Adam Bishop. I'm Mark Bishop. We are, of course, reading Alan Ryan's On Politics, a book discussing the history of political theory from the ancient Greeks to the modern day. We are moving away from Rome this time. We covered Polybius and Cicero and Roman politics last week. We are moving on to Augustine, uh, who was still part of the, the Roman Empire, but really saw the the complete collapse of it, or really what, what heralded the complete collapse a, a little bit after um, his life. Um, do you have any first thoughts before we just jump into his life and times? Not really. Not really. You thought a long time about that. I thought you were going to say something, but then you didn't. So that was, that was fantastic. Well, you're right that it's, uh, you know, kind of uh, deviating from the, a little bit from the, the well, certainly from the Greeks, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, but yeah, it's the end of the Roman uh, Republic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was actually, uh, I guess, of African descent. Yes. North African. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a Berber. Yes. He was, I'm going to start reading from my notes here. He was a Roman citizen born in Thagaste, North Africa in 354, and he was ethnically a Berber. And his parents were just wealthy enough to send him to a boarding school at age 11. His mother, Monica, was a devout Christian and his father a non-Christian. And Catholic Christianity had very recently become the official religion of the Roman Empire, the final great persecution of Christians having taken place under Diocletian in 305 to 306. So we're roughly about 50 years after you know, widespread acceptance of Christianity being the big thing. Um, And so Augustine claimed that he had a miserable childhood. Uh, He disliked learning and preferred the pain of punishment over the pain of Greek lessons. And he initially intended to work in imperial administration, uh, which required order skills. So he went to Carthage to learn rhetoric. And while there, he took a mistress and had a son and was later appalled by his youthful yieldings to the urgings of the flesh. He went on to teach rhetoric in North Africa, and then Rome, and then became a professor of rhetoric in Milan, which was now the de facto head of the Western Roman Empire. And while there, uh, he attempted to to make an advantageous marriage, uh, but after some great mental anguish, he renounced this and converted to Christianity in 386. For a time, he was a Monachian hearer, um, and was then attracted to the Neoplatonism of Plotinus, which was a gateway to Christianity. He then returned to North Africa, Uh, to Hippo, and was made a priest in 391 and a bishop in 395. He wrote much about his view of the true church and true faith. Uh, One of the biggest books about this was the Confessions, which was written from 397 to 400, uh, which was really a continuous prayer to God who had saved him and the reflections on the mysteriousness of human existence. Have you you read any of uh, St. Augustine's stuff? I have it sitting right behind my laptop, actually. It's part of the set that I have here. I have not read it, although I translated the first couple paragraphs from Latin into English for a Romance Languages project uh, last year. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. That was, that, was, that was very fun. That's actually a fun, fun thing to do. <laughs> You're a strange young man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, at this time, a, a bishop was not really a grand figure in the church, uh, but was important in secular administration. Uh, a bishop would typically exp- uh, exercise judicial functions in several other executive features. Um, in the year 410, Alaric and the Visigoths sacked Rome, prompting the writing of the City of God Against the Pagans, which was published in 427. So this is Augustine's really major politically focused work. Uh, And so at this point, Roman rule was decaying. Augustine died in 430 in a besieged hippo, which was full of refugees and was sacked and burned the following year. And so through his writings, Augustine was second only to St. Paul in his impact on the history of Christianity, at least in Alan Ryan's opinion. 
Uh, and so it was kind of incredible uh, that he even had this big of an impact because the intellectual life of Christianity was still more Greek than Roman. Greek was the language of philosophy and Augustine's knowledge was secondhand from Cicero in Latin translations of Plotinus. Uh, Constantinople and Jerusalem were much more likely sources of theology. So it's very strange that this guy from, from North Africa even happened to have any sort of impact on Christianity. Uh, and so the city of God takes firm, uh, uncompromising views on issues that were once an open question prior to this. Uh, these were things like free will, predestination, original sin, and the requirements for salvation. So some major things he attempted to settle with his writings, uh, some big issues that were facing many theological institutions at the time. Yeah, I think, uh, I wonder how much um, political thought has has progressed through history just because so certain guys showed up and put in the time and effort to write it down. You know, I mean, yeah. he just he was such a prolific writer, like uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas was too. And um, and some of it is, you know, just they, they wrote a ton. No, they're very smart and all that kind of stuff. But maybe there was somebody that was uh, of that era that, that had the same ideas. They just didn't put it down. Well, I mean, I it's, it's almost like, you know, Socrates, essentially. If Socrates didn't have a student that wrote everything down, we'd know nothing about his philosophy. That's a good point. I'd that say it's my... definitely possible that there's many people like that. We just don't know anything about them. Yeah. But um, so, you know, I mean, the fact that he wrote so much, um, it, it, it is kind of odd, though, that um, this lesser official from North Africa is is so prominent in church philosophy and, and Western philosophy as far as religion and, and uh, politics are concerned. Absolutely. And then before we discuss really what Augustine's uh, beliefs were, um, Alan Ryan kind of talks about, you know, bridging the gap from Cicero to Augustine, what's happening in politics since uh, since we talked about Cicero. So following Cicero's death, Caesar's adoptive grandson Octavian established the Principate, which was one man rule, but the forms of the Republican institutions were preserved for a surprisingly long time. And so only when the entire empire was threatened by outside uh, disasters or military disasters and economic and administrative chaos during the third century did the political structure radically change. And so then the, after that point, there was a succession of empires uh, or emperors, um, and this created a centralized bureaucratic and uniform system with an emphasis on obedience and order. The emperors were increasingly drawn from the Eastern Empire and so developed a more Persian view of a ruler's status. So Constantine began the process of turning the pagan empire Christian, and this was solidly established when Theodosius outlawed pagan cults in the late 4th century. So we're seeing this, this turn away from the Roman Republic and then the rise of the empire, um, and then finally the, the empire becoming officially Christian. And so Christianization fostered the process by which the Pope became the head of the Western Church, and with that, Latin became the universal language of Western culture. And the Catholic Church was the only institution whose authority aspired to, to the geographical reach of the Western Empire. I'm going to read just a small section from the book. Uh, Alan Ryan says, Looking back, we see the ingredients assembled for the creation of the distinctive institutions of church and state, cooperating but serving different ends, and always in danger of coming into conflict either over doctrine or over the privileges of the clergy or over the different loyalties they appealed to. But if the Western and Eastern halves of the Roman Empire had not gone their separate ways, the history of Christianity would have been very different, and our ideas about the naturalness of a division of labor between religious and secular institutions would have been very different too. Uh, so an interesting point he makes there, you know, if the empire had stayed cohesive in one big unit stretching west to east, 
we really would have seen the, the church kind of combined with the state, but it was only because it split then we saw that the Pope really rise to prominence and kind of try to have any sort of control over the, the decaying Western Empire at the time. Yeah, and that's 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 been the struggle I think since. Um, and and the the opposite problem is now, like like you know, in, in, as the Middle Ages went on with the popes trying to gain more and more uh, civil power, but that mm-hmm. that kind of struggle between the civil authority and the spiritual spiritual authority is is uh, is fascinating. And mm-hmm. I think I think in recent years. Um, it's gone to the extreme, the other extreme where there is no religion mm-hmm. in public life at all. And if, in fact, you know, the, the people that uh, are elected leaders quite often are non-practicing mm-hmm. uh, any religion or they, you know, they pretend like Joe Biden pretends that he's Catholic or Nancy Pelosi pretends she's Catholic, but neither of them are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody knows they're not. Yeah. Uh, but um so it's in, in the, you know, there's this idea that we have in our constitution, a separation of church and state, which we don't, um, uh, we specifically don't, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, so it's, it's, I can see a pendulum swing in the other direction where people want to have, you know, and we had that like in the eighties, there was like a, a lot of like Pat Robertson was, was, uh, I think might've been a candidate for president at some point, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, he was, um, you know, a part of the religious right is what they called him back then and and um had a big um uh, push to have um these evangelical evangelical christians have more and have an active role in the in the the politics but they they really just didn't didn't uh they took a hold of a certain number of um republican politicians but they never really did get the the overall societal support i don't think interesting large portions of the of the country but I think you're you're seeing, well, we're, we're really seeing the the end result of a complete secularization mm-hmm. of of society and then government mm-hmm. uh, because there's really just no um, religious basis for any laws anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, nobody talks about Jesus when you pass a law. You know, they say, "Well, that's irrelevant." And I I, I kind of like that and respect it because it should stand on its own merits mm-hmm. logically, but. Uh, but but there's no ethical system either. Yeah, you know? that's kind of what we talked about either last week or the week before. We kind of talked about like first we we very expressly removed like religion out of the law. Um, but now I think we're getting to the point that we can't even talk about, you know, basic morals within regard to the law um, because right. it's just, well, we can't do that. That's that's your morality, not everybody's. And it's like, well, kind of have to agree on something, guys. Like we we, we do have to have a baseline here. Right. And, and uh, St. Augustine uh, has interesting you know, thoughts about the role of, mm-hmm. you know, morality, religion and civic government and the, the role it, it would have and, you know, some, some places limited and some mm-hmm. places uh, complete. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So moving on from there, Alan Ryan says it was, it's really hard, especially at this time, to set the boundaries between what is religion and what is politics because they were so intertwined, you know, with the, the empire and everything. Uh, so he says the crucial contrast for our purposes is between Christian politics and pagan politics. Right. Um, you have the theologically complex, the fiercely monotheistic Christianity and the theologically casual polytheistic, uh, quote unquote, civic religions of the Greeks and the Romans. Um, so essentially, so it's how much do we enforce, you know, monotheism in a, in a place that, you know, historically has been held by by polytheists, you know, who kind of accepted that everybody has their own gods, essentially, you know, but now if we're believing, we're making it official and everything's monotheistic and we have to set up these 
groundworks for what is moral and what is immoral, set up this theology, you know, how do we enforce that at all? It was a huge question, of course, at the time. And I mean, somewhat still is to not to this extent with, you know, paganism being the, the big uh, opposition, but you know, what do we do? You know, in regards yeah, to- wait, wait for it. We're, we're going to have more and more pagans, you know, the animus, the uh, crazy uh, environmentalists mm. that want to, you know, uh, worship nature and Gaia and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, as of this semester, uh, Truman State University has a new pagan club uh, that has opened up on campus. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, there we're going to I don't think we've ever mentioned this on the on the podcast, but we I really am going to have to implement um, Bozo the Angry Protest Clown. <laughs> <laughs> or I would dress up similar to Bozo of Bozo's Circus, I think is what it was. It was a, a program in WGN Chicago, local, originally a local uh, kids programming out of Chicago, and it went uh, syndicated nationwide. And, and Bozo, I forget what his buddy was. He had a sidekick. Anyway, I dress up like Bozo in a big red wig and, um, you know, clown makeup, big shoes and stuff, but I'd be angry and I'd be smoking a cigarette, although I don't smoke. I'd I'd have to pick that up Mm -hmm. and I would either yell absurd things in support of the protests, like take their positions and say them absurdly in favor of them, you know, they're the logical ends of their, Mm -hmm. of whatever they're doing or say things uh, absurdly truth, (laughs) truthful to them, which would be insulting to them and rile them up. Mm-hmm. maybe have some sort of intro music, maybe some dry ice, you know, uh, mm-hmm. fog machines. Yes, of course. Uh, maybe, maybe if it's at night, maybe some lasers. Mm, uh, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, they, I, I, I'm giving it more and more thought mm. because, you know, if we're going to have organized pagans, uh, <laughs> we need to have something uh, <laughs> to mock them uh, because I can respect atheists. Mm-hmm. I don't respect agnostics too much because I think they're just lazy atheists. Uh, I don't have no respect for pagans. Mm. Uh, I, I have nothing but contempt for them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, that's uh, not <laughs> So anyway, sorry, we got a little off topic there, but I think St. Augustine would agree with me. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, so. Nothing but contempt for these, these damn pagans. <laughs> Literally damned. Yes. Moving um, on uh, from that lovely point. Um, Alan, do you think- do you think the universities can get any more absurd? I don't know if they can. I was but, thinking I was thinking they couldn't, but then they continually do. It keeps happening. Yeah. It's uh, like, it's uh, like I, I think I'll hear about an event like one week and I'll be like, wow, I think that's the craziest thing that the university has ever done. And I'll be walking down the hallway and it'll be a poster for something. I'm like, why? Why do we why are we doing this? Why are we spending money on this? I, I think we're one. Well, maybe one semester away from a baby club where people will dress up in diapers and have bottles, bottle people. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm now that I say that, there's probably somebody that's already done it. Don't you think there's probably oh, most definitely baby club, but at a university setting? Uh, you know, I, I, I look forward to that because we're infantizing them so much. Uh, I was just reading an article today um, about an NYU professor who didn't have his contract renewed. He was a uh, year to year. I guess he retired from, I forget what a university was. And he taught organic chemistry and they fired him because the uh, students were upset that he required them to learn the subject. <laughs> and, um, and uh, they, they, they had a petition that he, uh, it was too hard and he did not reward the hard work they put in, huh. uh, even if they did not get a passing grade. So he'd fail them based upon the results as opposed to the effort they put in. It was pretty absurd. Mm. How dare uh, you judge me on my merits? 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, welcome to the pagan world and all that stuff. And interesting. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I don't know what has happened. Yes. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what the solution is, uh, but I think uh, St. Augustine may have some ideas. I don't know. Maybe. Yes. Getting back to St. Augustine, uh, Alan Ryan kind of mentions that Christian political theology is problematic. And that if humans are only transitory on earth, and earth is what we must just pass through on the way to paradise, then life in the polis cannot be the good life for man. Uh, He says, you know, Jesus's teachings did not focus on politics. In the first two centuries after his death, Christianity might well have been thought as un or apolitical. It initially appealed to the poor who had absolutely no part in public life. However, the civic life of the empire impinged on Christians. They faced punishment up to and including hideous forms of death for refusing to sacrifice to the emperor or the gods, and they were often made scapegoats for many disasters. The rise of Christian leaders forced the question of how a state should support a religion, how Christians should support a state. So previously where this wasn't even necessary because the Christians didn't really have a part in the state, now that they're coming up and you know being these leaders, you know, how do you enforce your theology or your, your religion on people, essentially? Yeah, and how, how do you even justify participating in, mm-hmm. in those kind of civic uh, decisions? And and it really must have been off-putting for the the pagans at the time. You know, the, the, where they had they had it was like kind of like saluting the flag, or you know, the, you know when you do the um, sacrifices to the gods, uh, and you participate in the different festivals. It must have really been off-putting that the mm-hmm. Christians are. Like, yeah, I'm I'm just not going to do that. And I, you can, you could just imagine their friends saying, "What are you cheap? You don't want to give." Yeah. You know, slaughter that calf or you know apollo or whatever the case may be and saying no i'm I'm christian i don't think i should you know uh i don't think i should do that uh well he mentions that i think i think a little bit later but it was was more serious than that because you know they thought that you know the reason that rome still exists is because it has the support of the gods and the gods are easily you know easily lose their support you know if you slight them or you you make them angry and if you don't sacrifice to them you're making them angry so you're responsible for everything bad that happens if you don't sacrifice to them yeah, and so that's that's the second phase. First phase is, hey, you cheap bastard, why don't you slaughter the canal? And then the 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 second phase is like, oh my god, we just had a plague. You know what, why we had the plague is because you bastards wouldn't slaughter the calf. <laughs> you bastards, and, uh, get them. Let's slaughter these guys. We don't make the gods happy. We don't have these locusts around here. <laughs> and, uh, and then coincidentally, after they slaughter some Christians, uh, the locusts went away. Well, they probably would have gone away anyway, but. Uh, you know, it's a correlation. They didn't understand the correlation versus causation arguments. Yes, yes. They, didn't, they didn't internalize them. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, it seemed to work. It sounds like you're <laughs> speaking from experience. <laughs> this is very strange. <laughs> anyway, I just understand them <laughs> and those pagans. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Alan Ryan goes on to talk about what Manichaeanism is. Of course, that was the the first faith that Augustine found. That's how he began his search for faith as one of uh, the hearers of Manichaeanism. And the hearers were spiritual travelers who served the adepts of the faith or the Illuminati and prepared their food. And this was not reviled heresy by the church at this time. Uh, And Manichaeanism was the creation of, of a third century Persian sage named Mani, who described himself as the apostle of Christ. And this, uh, in Manichaeanism, actually answered the problem of evil. Um, this is why Augustine was really drawn to it. Uh, it relied on one non-Christian premise, uh, in that the material world and all matter are evil, and that God is good and pure spirit, but the physical world was the work of the devil. 
And so because the created world is evil, as is our physical nature and sexual reproduction, um, we were, they were therefore committed to vegetarianism. Uh, and they also had elements of sun worship and incorrect astronomy. And these two things really made Augustine's faith give way uh, in Manichaeanism. And it was attractive in that it doesn't blame innocent suffering on God. Alan Ryan says here, innocent suffering is the rock on which Christianity is always in danger of shipwreck. Critics of the Christian belief that this imperfect world is the creation of a benign omnipotence always point to the painful deaths of little children as clinching evidence that it cannot be. Either God is not omnipotent or he is not benign. If you wish to bite the bullet and accept the third possibility, that tiny children are sinful and merit their suffering. Augustine built the bullet, eventually arguing that we all entered the world tainted with the sin of Adam and deserve what we suffer. One might think that the Manichaean view that God is the source of goodness, uh, but unable to make headway against the devil, is less alarming. First distance of Manichaeanism into the late Middle Ages suggests that many people have thought so. So it was very attractive for that reason, especially. And, you know, we see terrible things happen, but if God is good, why do terrible things happen? And they essentially say, well, the world itself is bad. God is not bad. These things happen because the world is the work of the devil. Which well, is- and, yeah, and our listener, if our listener is still listening to this mm-hmm. episode, is probably wondering, why are you talking about the nature of God and man and, and, and the nature of evil? But it, it really is fundamental when you talk mm-hmm. about political decisions, especially when you're talking about a criminal justice system, because you, st- you still have this debate going on. Okay, uh, are, are people evil? Uh, do people do evil things or are they just caused to do things because of their background and their history and what has happened to them? And uh, August, uh, St. Augustine had a, a, a pretty wild uh, view of this, I think, you know, that, that we're all, I mean, we're all sinners is my view, but that doesn't mean we're all sinning all the time. <laughs> Uh, I think that we're, we're, none of us are perfect is what I mean by, uh, uh, we're all sinners and we've all sinned, especially, you know, in adults, but you know, like a two-year-old, I don't really consider a two-year-old a sinner. Um, but, uh, certainly as a person ages, uh, they're capable of, of sin. They're imperfect and we're all imperfect. And, and, uh, and so he, he has a different justification for it. But if you look at any debate with, um, with like the left wing about criminal justice punishment, bail reform and all that stuff, you, you see uh, a, a thought that um, uh, crimes are a result of, of societal pressures or, or uh, the patriarchy or, or some other kind of amorphous or vague uh, societal creation as opposed to an individual decision to punch someone in the face and steal their stuff. Yeah, that's a uh, great discussion that I think we'll get into later. There's actually a great quote uh, from Alan Ryan himself that I want to read that I think really, really sums up, I think, what you're saying. So foreshadowing and foreshadowing. Yes. Foreshadowing, exactly. But, it, but it's important to remember, you know, the base, the basic philosophy about, OK, what is the nature of evil? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is our what is our role in this this world? And, and did, did God uh, does God have, have an active role in, in what we're doing? And, and, and you know, it's a kind of a different more broad philosophical discussion, but it's important to think about those things before you start making decisions about how to, how to regulate stuff. Mm -hmm. Nobody seems to do that either, but that's another issue. (laughs) Yes. Moving back to Manichaeanism, um, it really appealed to Augustine's sense that he was full of bad desires. And the reason for this, you know, why he was full of bad desires, you know, Manichaeanism settled this for a while, but he only found a more satisfying answer in St. Paul so then we turn of how he how he turned to how he came to Christianity. And so he escaped from Manichaeanism uh, through Neoplatonic philosophy. 
Uh, primarily, Cicero's writings affected Augustine's political views. Um, his criticism of Rome uh, was different from Cicero's in that Rome suffered from libido dominationis, the lust for power for its own sake, which comes straight from De Republica. The Neoplatonist reconciled the goodness of ultimate reality with suffering of the world. The world is a veil of tears because it's a shadow of the true world illuminated, illuminated by the light of the divine uh, being. And so evil is privation, not a positive force in the world. And so this kind of is the same thought uh, as ultimate misfortune uh, being separation from God. It's not that right. God caused it. It's, you know, evil happens because we are separated from God. Uh, and so Augustine was converted by reading St. Paul. He had become increasingly unhappy and believed he had received a divine message to open the Bible. And so read a passage from the epistles and took it as an injunction to arm himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was initially inclined to become a recluse, but it was essentially strong armed into the priesthood by the congregation at Hippo. And so that's sort of how he came to Christianity, um, not through Christianity first, but through Cicero and through Plotinus. And then finally, through St. Paul, he kind of found the answers to his questions. You know, my dad was a big fan of St. Paul. Uh, yeah, read, you know, read, of course, all of it and uh, all of his letters and, and um, I think some some history, you know, some books about him as much as they know about him. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like anything that he writes. Really? I, 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 I am so fed up. With the weekly church readings that, you know, like we have two readings in the gospel. The, the One is going to be something from the Old Testament generally, and then there's going to be something from the New Testament. And the New Testament is always these stupid letters from St. Paul. <laughs> Dear beloved, you know, oh, God. Is, is there any reason you don't like them besides the fact that they're read every week? I don't think he says that much. Mm. I mean, it, it's very vague and... Uh, you know, I, I, I respect him because he was a um, he's spread the message of Christianity. But uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a bunch of letters from this dude Why in the Bible. You know, hmm. those are letters. Why yeah. is that Bible? Yeah. You know, do we I mean, I guess we're, we think that, that God inspired all that. But we know that's you know, it's, that's not the story of Jesus. That's hmm. him commenting. There's like, those are commentaries. <laughs> I don't know. It's the annotations at the end of the Bible. He connects some of the books together. He, he's he's like an editor, I guess. Yes, he is. He's like a commentary. He's like he's an like an editorial. You're right. Um, uh, it's like the the Missouri annotated statutes, where you have little comments on it. Oh, this is what this means. You know what? I don't need you to tell me that. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I've I've never really thought about it. I've just kind of accepted that. If, well, of course the epistles are in the Bible because they've always been, I guess. But I've never really thought about why. They're only in there after he wrote them. Well, that's that's true. I wonder how many other letters he wrote that, that weren't preserved. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, man, where's my 10 percent? I don't know. You know, I'm not saying that he took you know, <laughs> bribes, but, but you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, there may be, you know, like, um, you know, hey, that dinner was great. Um, thanks for inviting me over. It was a good visit. Well. Why isn't that in the Bible? Well, because know. it doesn't relate <laughs> to Christianity at all. I think that's a pretty clear reason. But yeah, but why is it one, a different, you know, some other letter he wrote? Well, because, because it's all the teachings to the first churches about how the church should function. I think that's why it's in the Bible. Yeah. It, it, they read to me like, um, like emails uh, to underlings when you're starting up a, a nonprofit. Mm. A lot of the time, I think that's really what they were, is like, you know, these churches, churches sprung up and then they started doing something wrong. And then I think St. Paul wrote to them like, hey, that's not hey, how you're supposed to do it. Hey, you bastards, quit, <laughs> quit, quit beating people because they're not cat or Christians. 
That's not the way. This is the way. It's like a bunch of Mandalorian statements. This is the way. Hey, dummies. Knock <laughs> it off. Quit fighting with each other. Just follow God. Cry out loud. All right. Are you done complaining about St. Paul? Yeah. I mean, they're just all much. A lot of half of them are angry letters. You know, yeah. Anyway, but um, having said that, my dad was a big fan, and evidently Saint Augustine was too, and and uh, converted him. So that's yeah. all to the better. Yes, it is. Moving on, um, Alan Ryan goes on to talk about you know what provoked the writing of the City of God, and so he kind of describes Augustine as a warrior in the cause of theological truth. The City of God is not Augustine's political theory, but rather theological controversies and philosophical issues that became the foundation of future political writings. Um, so he's not really describing, you know, what's the best source of government, but later authors took what he said about these deep theological philosophical truths and then made them the basis of government going forward. Of course, some of his stuff does touch directly on politics, but it wasn't primarily um, for that purpose. And so the sack of Rome was what really provoked the city of God. It was not really the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, but was a powerful psychological shock to all of the empire's inhabitants. So this raised the argument about the role of Christianity in the fall of Rome. Pagan religion ascribed uh, the, this, excuse me, ascribed earthly misfortune to malice of insulted or slighted gods. So the Christian unwillingness to sacrifice was a literal threat. Uh, and so that's kind of why they targeted Christianity. Um, and so that's why Augustine wrote the city of God to counter these claims that Christianity is responsible. And he began to write it as a response to this in 413. Um, and in this book, he really turns Cicero inside out. So he's taking a lot of Cicero's ideas and kind of flips them on their head. Um, he accepts that man possesses reason, uh, but reason is not capable of motivating humans to behave as they ought, uh, as we have a limited degree of free will. Reason just assists us to choose one more or less sinful course over another. And this is very counter to Cicero's thinking that if we have reason, we will make the right decision. Mm -hmm. um, Augustine says there's really no one truly right decision. Um, most things we do are sinful. Um, and reason just helps us choose the less sinful course of action. And he does not deny that justice is a settled intention to give everyone his due. But he does deny that any state on earth can ever be a Ciceronian race publica. No people can truly practice real justice in a Ciceronian political community. So then he goes on to make two bold claims. And the first is that no pagan state practices Ciceronian justice because it does not give the one true God his due, and therefore no pagan state can have a true common good. And so he kind of, with that, attacks the argument that Rome's fall was the result of slighted God, um, as he lists the, the innumerable disasters that Rome suffered from when attached to the old cults uh, and kind of says the old gods never kept their promises. Um, you know, they never kept their end of the bargain. We sacrificed and this bad thing still happened. Why is this bad thing now blamed on us if we're not sacrificing? Um, but then his second claim is that not even a Christian state can practice true justice, even though it can give God his due, since real justice is giving everyone what they are really due. And the only being who knows what that is, is God. And thus, earthly justice is beyond us. Um, so an interesting uh, idea there. Um, so then he kind of goes on to say, you know, if, if that's not the foundation of human affairs, if justice is not what is central, then what is? And he says the answer to that is love. And he defines love as this word libido, which is strong affection, uh, any sort of active force in the world um, attracting two things together. Um, he says, uh, I'm going to read from the book. He claims that in any loving relationship between two people, there are three agents in action, the lover, the beloved, and love itself. Libido or active desire makes the world move and especially the social and political world. It is important too, that it is an active force that can take possession of us. 
the Rome whose misfortunes provoked the writing of the City of God, was animated by a libido dominandi, a desire for conquest that then dominated Rome herself. Just as sexual passion can become addictive, so can the desire for glory. So that's really what, what draws us together. That's really what, what keeps, you know, political systems going is libido, whatever sort of thing you value most, whatever attractive force, whatever desire is, is at the center of your state. Do you have any thoughts about that? You, you, you've been quiet for a while. I've, I've been figuring you've had something to say. Well, it's hard for me to interrupt you when we're mm. uh, on the virtual deal. That is true. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I think, you know, let's see, what was my thought I was thinking of 10 minutes ago when you started that law? I'm so uh, sorry um, that I'm describing the content of our podcast. <laughs> I'll describe the content. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, as, as far as the, uh, you know, dealing dealing with Cicero, I mean, you know, I think he, he's, it's always fun to, to read these philosophers that comment on other philosophers because the second guy is always makes good points about how the, stupid the first mm -hmm. guy is. And then the one that comes after him says how stupid that guy is. So it's kind of, it's always fun to read him in, in, in sequence, but, uh, and, and he's right that the, the argument that God's protected Rome, of course, that, you know, look at all these other tragedies, you know, this, you know, this earthquake happened, that plague happened, you know, but you guys were all sacrificed. Of course, the counter argument is, well, he doesn't sacrifice enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it killed some more virgins. He <laughs> uh, just didn't do it good enough. You know, or it would have been worse. It would have been worse if uh, we had these damn Christians around, or you know. So there's, there's, there's. There, in a way, it refutes it. In a way, it, it cannot be refuted. Yeah. It's one of those things. You know, it's like climate climate change. It, you know, it, it, you can never refute it because they'll always just change the argument. Yes. Well, the, the climate change will result in more hurricanes. Well, the hurricanes are down for like last five years. Well, they're just uh, more intense now, mm. and. Uh, and maybe that change is bad. I don't know. Well, it reminds so, me uh, of what you just said. It reminds me of um, like uh, COVID vaccines. You know, he might have died from COVID, but if he didn't have the vaccine, it would have been much worse. Yeah, you still well, well, he still died. You still see people posting that like uh, I did everything right. I wore a mask and I still got COVID. But thank God I'm vaccinated and boosted times three or else it really would have been bad. <laughs> Dude. Are you still saying that now? And these are like prominent people, you mm -hmm. know, that, that hold uh, either positions in, in journalism or big media or the government. And I'm thinking, God, can you be that stupid? And, and, but that's their religion. You mm -hmm. know, that's, that's their, uh, that's their pagan God. You know, yeah. Dr. Fauci's a pagan God and, and uh, they will not, they will not smite him or spite him or he might smite them. Mm. Right. Yes. The right yes. That is correct. Um, yeah, so, but, but, uh, but I think, I think, if, you know, it's interesting. He says, well, you can't have a just society if you're a pagan society because you're not giving the one true God his due. Well, how the hell do you give God his due yeah. in, in here as a, as a government? I, I don't know what that is. Well, how do you give God his due? I guess 10%, you know, I, I don't know. How do, you, how do you give God his due? Uh, uh, with a with a, a political system, yeah, you know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I do not know how to do that. I guess I guess the Muslims have it right, where they have like you know uh, the 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 prayers, you know, when they call to prayers. Mm. You know, that's kind of a pseudo governmental. It's not pseudo. It's part of their you know some of the governmental systems, and you know, everything shuts down for the call of prayer. Mm. And they they all face Mecca, I guess. I yes. don't know. 
I'm not an expert on it, but um, and so maybe they're the only ones that are giving God his due. Hmm. Maybe so. But I don't I don't think that's that's a good way to to say, you know, you can't set up your system, your system of government trying to guess how to give God his due. Yeah. You know, whether it's pagan gods or the God, um, that, 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 that just rings hollow to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. He knows how to give God his due. So yeah. why is your system more just than a pagan system? It's got to be. It's got to be somehow based on an ethical system that's that's separate from giving God his due. Yeah, uh, don't you think? I would assume so. I mean, but he, I mean, he does kind of admit that, like, we don't even really know what that is, right? At the end of the day, we can't have true justice because we don't know what is just for everybody. That's in the the mind of God alone. But why make the argument that the pagans can't be just because mm. they're not giving? Why do you even mention that then? If you don't, if you don't, yeah. if, other than just because he's not saying that they they probably aren't he's saying they can't be just because they're not giving god his due i guess maybe he's just using cicero's own logic yeah i think that's what it is really because his whole thing is you know uh justice is giving everyone their due well they're not giving the true god yes his due but but he busy can't figure out how even what that even is Mm. it's unknowable true how do you know the pagans aren't giving his due maybe his due is nothing (laughs) (laughs) If, if, if do if what is due to God from the political system is nothing, then the pagans are doing it just mm. as well as the Christians are because he wasn't doing anything. Mm. Good point. Good point. Yeah, thank you. I'm pretty good at this. Yes. Move, moving away from his discussions on Cicero, he then goes on to accept Plotinus's view that evil is the loss of good, not a. I want to interrupt. I want to interrupt you. That last rant uh, was your fault because you asked me for it. I'm very sorry. Sitting here silently, letting you go on. And I just want you to know mm-hmm. you asked for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I really do. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so back to that. Uh, he, he accepted that evil is the loss of good. And in doing that, he emphasizes emphasized the will. We sin against the light because we will to do evil. So there's a couple of reasons why we might sin. We sin because of pride. Um, and in that, we, we we know that we have wills and we wish to make them effective. You know, that pride that I have, this this power to, to make my free choices, I will use it to, to do the wrong thing. Uh, and he also says that we, we sin because we want to keep company with others. And this is where I found that that great quote um, that I was mentioning earlier. It says, Adam was not so much beguiled by Eve as ready to do whatever it took to remain in her good books. We cannot survive without company. Augustine wanted the approval of the local hoodlums and joined in their wickedness. He had a sure grasp of what motivates rioters and looters in the contemporary world and commentators looking for the deep causes of unrest. He's unflinching about the fact that he chose to do what he did and that he enjoyed it. Um, so kind of what you were saying earlier, you know, we're looking for all the, the deep-seated roots and of evil and those sorts of things in our society. But he's really saying these people did this bad action because they wanted to and they wanted to be liked by those around them. That's it. That's why they did those things. You know, we can't say, well, you know, their home life, well, this and that. And those might be factors in it, but that ultimate choice was up to them and they did it because they wanted to. And that's it. Which I figured you would like that that approach very much. Um, well, you're big on free will. Well, I mean, it's just true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not what I like. It's just what it is. And I, got, I, I just get so tired of the Adam and Eve discussion. Um, because it's, it's inevitably some sort of blame shifting deal. Yeah. And, and I, I just really don't like all the commentary about, about that whole thing about, well, you know, she, cause even, even, you know, in this summary of, uh, St. Augustine's view of it is that he's doing it because he just will do anything to make her happy. Well, why, what the hell, you know, I mean, 
I think they're just equally at fault for making the decision to eat the apple. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Talk about it. You know, I don't, I don't think there's anything relative to it. They, they, they decided to do it. He was, he could have said, yeah, no, you know what? And he could have said no to her and convince her not to do it. You know I mean? What, what's his responsibility to, to, to her morality? Mm-hmm. He could have kept her from doing it. I mean, so uh, I, I, anyway, but, but he's at, he's right on about, you know, the rioters and stuff and, and, and the vast majority of crime, there's very few crimes that are, that are involuntary in nature, either legally or morally. Mm-hmm. And they're so far and few, few and far between. And um, uh, I'm not going to say too much, but I got, I got, I got court appointed for people that are, um, um, that are going to have possibly a guardian uh, uh, appointed, uh, appointed to manage their affairs or make decisions for them because they're so mentally ill. They can't, they can't do that. Well, this one guy is, uh, has a pending murder charge. I haven't met him yet. I'm probably meet him next week or this maybe next week. Um, but um, anywho, that the you know the, the, this guy's on for a murder charge, and, and there's a good chance he he really did not appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct. But he had a documented uh, terrible mental history for for what over 20 years, I guess. And uh, anywho, so that's a that's the exception. Mm-hmm. The vast vast majority of crimes are not because people are hungry. The yeah. vast, I mean, they just, especially in America, they just don't exist. Um, because quite frankly, if you're, if you're starving anywhere in America and you really are starving and you say, I'm starving, will you, will you please give me some food? Mm-hmm. Everybody will give you some food. You know, if you're 300 pounds and you walk up into somebody and you say, I'm, I'm starving to death, <laughs> uh, they should not give you food. Uh, <laughs> you're not starving. You're just hungry. And, and there's a difference and there's an important difference that, uh, that people refuse to acknowledge and it's just excuse making. And it's because uh, I think in a lot of cases, they are friends with people who commit crimes. They're, they have family members who have committed crimes. They have family members who are in prison and they don't want to come to the conclusion that, you know what, they are in the criminal justice system because they did a terrible, horrible thing because they wanted to. And they're being punished and it's just too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm not saying that there aren't wrongful convictions that occasionally happen. I'm not saying that, you know, but, but for the people that have committed crimes, um, the vast, vast majority, I'm like upwards of 99% or more did it because they wanted to do it mm. or it's not a crime. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, and whether they're convicted or not, you know, whether they even charged, whether people know that mm-hmm. they've done it. Um, and, and it's kind of weird nowadays because it used to be the question when we were kids and when it was asked of us, which was more of a real question then, if nobody sees you do something, is it still wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, like, so you go to the store and you steal a candy bar and nobody sees you. Is it still wrong now with, with cameras everywhere? That's not a real question. Yeah. anymore. It's like, well, you know, because you either, you know, people are going to see it no matter what. And, um, and it's kind of, kind of interesting that it's now the decriminalization movement when we can monitor everybody, mm. maybe because everybody was wants to commit crimes. I don't know. Interesting. Yes. Moving back to, to Augustine though, unless you have anything else to add. No, I'm sure I do, but we can I'm move sure back. You do. Yes. Um, so much of the city of the God defends Christianity as not being the cause of Rome's fall. Uh, but does not discuss the different forms of government, 
Uh, and it says that, you know, trying to build an eternal polity is futile. You know, that's the big conversation with everybody we've talked about before. You know, how do you make something last forever? How do you avoid stasis and decay and things like that? And Augustine says, well, you can't. You just can't. It, it's stupid to try, uh, is essentially his argument, which is a pretty solid argument. No, no state is ever going to last forever. Um, we can get pretty close to a good state, um, but nothing will, will really last forever. Uh, but then we move on to a discussion of, you know, who the citizens of the city of God would be uh, trying to discuss, you know, that sort of thing. It says the citizens of the city of God are those whom God, by his grace, has admitted to the company of the saved. So then the earthly citizens are all the rest. And so election to the company is something we cannot discern by mortal eyes or earn by good behavior. It's just God has saved us or he hasn't, uh, is, is Augustine's view. It says, none of us is innocent of the sin of Adam. When God saves some but not others, it is not his sin but theirs that explains their punishment. Uh, and this kind of brings up, you know, the, the age-old discussion, you know, why did this city fall and not this one? There's evil people in, in the city that still stands. And, you know, why, why did God do such a thing? Why did God do that? That's not fair. And Augustine says, well, God did not sin. The people did. You know, end of story, essentially. Um, he says that, goes on to say that Christians must obey non-Christian rulers and a Christian state should be governed just like any other. And so this belief in this statement was provoked by the actions of the Donatists, who were extreme rigorists who wanted a church of the elect alone. And so this was very counter to Augustine's idea of an indiscernible mixed community, essentially the belief that, you know, every community will have good and bad people in it. We cannot decide, you know, who is truly good, who is truly bad. And so this forced him to articulate the view that it is the sacrament, not the minister, that is efficacious. Or what really matters is the sacrament being administered, not the minister's moral purity, because the Donatists were all about, you know, that this minister has done this terrible thing. You know, he's he's defiling the sacrament, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and Augustine says it doesn't matter what he does. It matters about the sacrament. Um, you know, his his personal life, his beliefs don't really matter. Um, and so Alan Ryan says that this applies also to politics. It's not the character of the politician, but their impact on the lives of their subjects that matters. And I think that definitely ties into what we were talking about just last week as well, um, you know stop focusing on what the, the politician is themselves, but focus on what they do. He then says that no earthly body can claim to be the city of God on earth, as all communities are of mixed quality. Uh, but he does say that the task of the church is to warn rulers and subjects when they are acting immorally, but not to exercise earthly responsibilities. They should, uh, the church should attend primarily to its one unique function, which is caring for the souls of its members and for the unfortunate and destitute. As Christians were not to embroil themselves in politics, they were not to resist tyrants or disobey lawful rulers, except under extreme circumstances and only by passive disobedience. And the only time when they could disobey is when they were given a command that amounted to the requirement to deny Christ, um, and that is the only time they could refuse. An example he gives is, of course, pagan sacrifices. You can deny requests um, that would cause you to, to deny Christ, and only by passive disobedience. You know, don't riot, don't try to kill the tyrant. Uh, just accept it and keep living your life uh, in a in a Christian way, essentially. That's Any very, thoughts on all of that? A very subservient view of a citizen mm -hmm. um, certainly doesn't take the view of the Greeks that believe that the citizen was the really the building block of the society, you know, and of the government. And so he 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 takes a more of a hands off approach, which is like, well, just do what you're told for mm -hmm. the most. part. Uh, and don't get too involved in, in the leadership. Um, and that, that creates its own problems because how do you, how do you, how do you deal practically with injustice? Well, he's just saying, just accept it, I guess, you know, and that, that's, that's a problem because if you just, if you let, 
evil flourish, it, it will. Yeah. And then, and then by saying, well, we're just doing what we're told. Um, well, it's the famous Nazi defense. Mm-hmm. Just following orders. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am sorry. <laughs> Although I was more of a French accent. Yeah, that uh, really was. Actually, that's more appropriate because the French uh, loaded up the Jews too. You know, they were more than happy to, some of them. Um, as Bart Simpson said, uh, cheese eating surrender monkeys, uh, <laughs> describing the French or two, species yes. French. Anywho, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it, if it flows logically from, you know, um, Christ's admonition, you give unto Caesar what is Caesar, you know, that's their business, you know, don't, don't try to fight that, you know, there's a, um, Caesar's on the coin, you know, pay your taxes. You got you know, and so a lot of that is true. You know, don't don't get too hung up with, you know, the ministerial duties of the government. You know, you, you can't yeah. you object to say, well, not my president because you know he's not, um, well, not a you know, not a Catholic or a Christian or whatever your, your particular sect is. You just accept that as the civil authority and and focus on you know your soul and, and that of you know uh, of everyone else. And uh, so I think there's some compelling arguments to that, but, but this kind of voluntary subjugation of yourself and just saying, well, you can do whatever you want, unless you order me not to uh, deny God, then I'll stand up. Uh, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a a recipe for a just society or a functioning government. Mm -hmm. True. Moving on, uh, he then goes on to talk about politics as a limited good. And he kind of starts this off by, by really, you know, setting in stone that we should not despise the material world. To do that is blasphemy as it is God's creation. You know, even though it's flawed, you know, our systems are flawed. We can't, you know, despise this thing that God has created. Um, and so part of that is that the fall of Adam has led us to lose control. Uh, and he brings up this concept of the disunity of mind and body. And he has actually a very compassionate um, argument about the victims of rape, I think, that, that would probably been very unique at the time. Um, he says that the, the women raped by the Visigoths were not violated and not dishonored. Uh, there's a major difference between uh, the victim of rape and being the sexual instigator, and they should not feel ashamed in that. He claimed, however, that Lucretia, a Roman heroine, was doubly wrong to kill herself after being raped. It was wrong to think of herself as dishonored and wrong to kill herself. A very interesting idea there, because, of course, you know, at the time, you know, if you were a woman who was raped, you were seen as, you know, dishonored. You know, this is terrible. Uh, I mean, of course, it is a terrible action, but, you know, they really believe that, that you know, impacts the, the worth of the person themselves, that victim. And, and Augustine says, no, not at all. This was not your fault. You know, do not blame yourself for this. Um, he then goes on to talk about how the earthly kingdom exists to promote peace. Uh, the goods of this world are not to be despised, and we must accommodate ourselves to earthly reality. It says religion cannot fend off earthly evil, earthly success and earthly failure have earthly causes. You know, just because, you know, we have religion as one of the things in our in our government does not mean that, you know, everything will be successful. You know, bad things can still happen on this earth. Uh, he says that, you know, states exist because we care for earthly things and require arrangements to satisfy the desire. The state helps keep stable ownership of earthly goods. It says, although ultimate justice cannot be achieved by a state, ordinary legal or conventional justice should be valued and pursued. So then he attacks the whole of the Roman Republic as driven by the lust for conquest. He says, if humans were rational, we would have created an enormous number of very small states, which could leave at peace amongst themselves and therefore have peace internally. So quite a few different scattered thoughts um, in that section there. 
um, breaking down, you know, sort of, you know, what what the state does. The state protects our earthly goods. It is not there to protect our you know heavenly goods. You know, we have things that we own on this earth and the state should do its best to make arrangements to protect them. Yeah. And, and uh, I think one thing that jumped out at me is, is, you know, the view that earthly justice is self-evidently better than injustice. Mm-hmm. You know, so at least he recognizes there's some, you know, a better, a, a more, a more, you, know, you can't have perfect justice on earth, but a more just society is better than, um, you know, an mm-hmm. in. An uh, unjust or unjust society. We'll never find perfect justice, but we can definitely move away from complete injustice. We can find something in between that is pretty good. Correct. Yes. And I, I wonder what he would think. Uh, I think he'd be in favor of uh, federalism. You know, like uh, where you have uh, smaller government, local government control. You know, with with defined limits of responsibility. So, you know, where he's talking about little different little most city states. Which is kind of their their view of it, and just have inter interstate arrangements. And so I I think what what he was really kind of alluding to, without really knowing it, was a a, a federalist system covering the known world, which is mm-hmm. I think is 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 probably the best type of uh, of government. You know, if you have mm-hmm. separate uh, and and as the as the, you get further away from the people, less authority. Yes, indeed. Moving on uh, to the last section here, which is really the the meat of this chapter, interestingly kind of pushed to the back, but it's really Augustine's concrete thoughts on what the state is, what punishment is, and just war. Many of his more you know directly political beliefs are contained in this section. And he starts it off by describing how the central feature of the state is that it wields coercive power. Uh, and so coercive in the sense of punishment. And punishment serves two purposes. It gives bad people a motive to behave better, and if that threat fails, uh, then punishment may reform the criminal and allow them to come back into proper society. He says, with appropriate aids, we can avoid choosing the more obvious and antisocial evils. So therefore, punishment helps our wills. If, you know, it's, it's prompting us to not do this terrible evil thing, then it is helping our free will and helping us to choose uh, the better option. And he very distinctly uh, opposed the death penalty, actually. Um, he says, like the father chastising his son to get him into the good habits that will regulate his conduct without the need for further chastisement, the state that imposes successful punishment will train the criminal into better behavior. If the better behavior becomes habitual, there will be no need for further punishment. To kill a man deprives him of the possibility of repentance. So he says, the criminal is supposed to be brought into the state of repentance, but it's almost impossible for him to die in a good frame of mind, given the barbarity of Roman executions. That's another element there. You know, the executions were terrible. You were kind of tortured to to convict yourself, and then you were tortured even more uh, to death. And so he says, you know, that's no way to to get them to to convert, to to realize the wrongs of their actions, because they will die very angry at everybody. Um, That is not a good state to die in. Yeah, I wonder what his view would be of the modern American death penalty system. With uh, the uh, you know the procedural appeals mm-hmm. to, to several higher courts, um, mandatory appeals really on their behalf, um, you know counsel on their uh, representing them, and you know the length of time between the the it's always a murder because uh, that's the only thing you can really execute people for mm-hmm. between the murder and their death. I think they just had a, a, a an execution. No, they didn't have an execution. Was it Alabama? It was it was a southern state, of course. Mm-hmm. And they had an execution that um, 
there, they, you know, there's a death warrant mm-hmm. procedurally. There's a death warrant that is issued by uh, whatever the authority is. Usually, it's well, it's either the, their state supreme court or the governor's office. So there's a death warrant that's issued and always has the date and the time. Mm-hmm. And this death warrant uh, was a for a particular date up till uh, for that particular date. And uh, they're doing it in the evening. And, um, you know, they, they always wait for these emergency appeals to be filed and that kind of stuff. And uh, ultimately, um, the death penalty was not administered because they couldn't find a vein in time. Huh. And the uh, hour of midnight passed. Wow. Literally. Interesting. And, uh, the death warrant expired before they could fi- find a vein to kill hmm. them. I guess, did they end up getting a different death warrant or is he just... I don't think they've issued a new one yet. He's just, the, the crime was from like the 1990s. Mm, yeah. So, uh, um, you know, it's just, and so, so, I mean, I understand, and I'm not trying to denigrate his, his, uh, his statements about the, the death penalty depriving somebody of the possibility of repentance. But mm-hmm. you know, if you go 30 years between the murder and uh, your execution, I think you have not denied him the possibility of repentance, yeah. especially when you're talking, you know, the amount of appeals and the different courts that it goes through. If each one of those courts finds that, hey, this guy did something bad enough to die, you know, pretty sure, you know, you'd have come to terms with it at that point that, hey, maybe, you know, if three separate judges have ruled that I've done something bad enough to die. I should kind of think about what I've done. Um, well, yeah. And I mean, if you don't know, I mean, you, first of all, the killer knows that he, they killed us. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that day, the day after, and every day thereafter, that they were guilty, whether they deny it or not to the public. And so the, the question is, did you have the opportunity to repent? Well, certainly, uh, if you went to trial, uh, you heard all the evidence mm-hmm. and you would have heard uh, very powerful evidence of how the person suffered and how their family members suffered because of the loss. And if that doesn't get you to come around, I don't know if if the killing you the next day would have mm. denied you the opportunity to repent. Now, in, in the Roman system of almost summary execution, mm-hmm. after they torture you to admit that you did it, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a good argument. It's a good argument. Yes. Hey, you know, we didn't give this guy an opportunity to really think about it to to reform his soul to mm-hmm. to to ask for forgiveness and for it to be received. You know, I'm, I'm you know God God can forgive anything mm-hmm. and. Uh, but you know, and you need to give the, the, the person an opportunity to repent. I, I completely agree with that. But mm-hmm. you know, you got 30 years on at some point, you know, the death penalty hasn't denied you your opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've had um, a good deal of time to think about it. Yes. Uh, but anyway, so yeah. I just had those thoughts. It's continuing in the vein of you know, punishment. Um, Augusta did not flinch from physical suffering. Um, his fear was not that uh, these criminals would suffer, but that they would suffer for what they had not done. You know, he, he was a fan of, you know, making, you know, a, a good punishment for these people. He wasn't, you know, a complete pacifist in that regard. He just wanted to make sure, hey, we need to make sure these guys actually did this thing um, and then punish them, essentially. And so this view of punishment then provided his account of just war. You know, what makes a, a war, you know, just to be fought? And he says that self-defense is always a legitimate use of war. And, you know, we may also frustrate preparations for future attack as well. We don't have to sit and wait till they invade us and then say, hey, we declare war. You know, if we know that somebody's going to invade us, we can we can attack them um, and things like that. He also says it is just war if a state punishes the crimes of another state and its people. Uh, the state essentially asks acts in the name of global justice. And so just war must be motivated by the intention to give to each what is his due. 
um, even though our capacity to determine the, the you know, responsibilities of each state is, is still limited. Um, you know, we should be still looking for global justice. You know, give each state his due is essentially the, the underlying message of just war. Um, do you think that is is a good account for just war? You know, just giving each state what they deserve. Um, I have I have big problems with just war, but uh, theory generally. But his his the philosophy of just war, I don't think um, makes any sense when he is so deferential to the civil authorities. Mm-hmm. In other respects, because if you have if the if the people who are the, the in the aggressor country who are just doing what they're told because mm-hmm. they're they're just you know they haven't been told to sacrifice to a pagan god yet, mm-hmm. uh, they've just been told to to pick up the sword and march to uh, you know uh, St. Louis or whatever. Uh, should we really salt the earth? Uh, you know, should, once we defeat them, should we go back and kill their family? I don't know. You know, I mean, I mean, I know he wouldn't I mean, yes. be agreeable to atrocities, but, but, um, you know, war, and of course I'm, I've never been in the military and, uh, but you know, we're seeing like in Ukraine, you see it's now that, you know, how the internet is, is so pervasive and video is so pervasive. You, you really see almost a real time. The atrocities that that always come mm-hmm. with war, and and I have I have a I I, I would say that I agree with a, a just war theory as a practical political philosophy, but not as a moral philosophy. I don't think there's any way to have a morally just war. Mm-hmm. I, just, I think there are wars of necessity. Mm-hmm. I, that's the way I view it. I don't view it as a just war. It's a war of necessity. So, are and, you like of the opinion that like the reasons for going into war can be correct. Like, you know, it's it's necessary that we do this, um, but it's not just because, you know, invariably people on the battlefield will do terrible things and, and terrible things happen because of war. You, 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 you don't. Yes. Uh, <laughs> except for that. You, you only go to war when you only go into war when you have no other alternatives because mm-hmm. someone has, has essentially declared war on you. that has attacked you and you have to fight off that, that to to protect your people from the atrocities that will inevitably occur if you don't defend them hmm. you know and and uh, and whether or not um you'll be judged for that after you um you know go on to your day of judgment i i don't know you know and but i i think um uh, i think i think that's a uh uh, that's a difficult i don't think there is a just war i just know i think ultimately um that they're just necessary wars or or, or wars that should never happen you know so like you know world war ii it had to happen yeah. you know they had, they, they, uh, the nazis were not going to stop the japanese were not going to stop the italians would take any opportunity to steal anything from anybody <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, they attacked, uh, was it, uh, was it Angola? Who did they attack first? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I forget. Uh, yeah, it was an African country and, and, uh, struggle with it a little bit, but, uh, as, so, um, anywho, so I, I just don't think, you, you know, if, if you look back and, and this is, this is a change from my, my beliefs when I was in my twenties, you know, you look back at like the first Gulf war and then the second Gulf war, and then, you know, our bombing and, in Yugoslavia, we probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, Yugoslavia, where, where the Serbians and the yes. Croatians, you know, there were atrocities there. And so we had a no fly zone. We bombed people 
you know, bombing of Libya was that was that just? Uh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard that that was that we were just killing some people, yeah. you know, and, uh, and maybe they needed killing, but um, but I don't, I don't know that we needed to do it, mm-hmm. and I don't know what we did it for. Yeah. Uh, that was not a formal declaration of war. We haven't had a formal declaration of war uh, since uh, World War II. Really. Yeah. Yeah, we had a yeah, a Korea, the Korean War was wasn't done, was not declared a war. The Vietnam was a police action. Korean Korean War was a was was also a police police action. Um, we had close to we had an authorization of use of force for after nine eleven, but that, mm-hmm. that was not a formal declaration of war. Interesting. Um, and and so it goes, it goes back to my old um, uh, gripe that we should not have a Department of Defense, mm-hmm. even though I believe that we should only act, really act in defense. But it's really a Department of War. Yeah, you know, only be be training for um, and, and uh, preparing for how to how to murder people. I mean, that because that's that's really what the yeah. the job is in war. You just got to murder more of their people than our people. Mm-hmm. I get killed because. And I'm not saying, and make sure that our listener understands, I'm not saying that all of our soldiers are murderers. I'm not saying yeah. that. I, I'm absolutely not saying that. I'm not really rendering a, a moral judgment on any of that stuff. I just I just have a problem with saying that any war is, is a morally just war in toto. You know, like everything about it is a just war because by its very nature, you're going to have a lot of innocent people killed. Yeah. You know, you just can't avoid it. You know, you're going to bomb that hideout. And, and you have to make those decisions. You know, if you, if you have, well, like, you know, like the ticking nuclear bomb, you know, yeah. if you have a ticking nuclear bomb that that's in the middle of a city and a uh, uh, city of a million people, and they put it in, in a school that has 200 kids in it. Hmm. And uh, you know, if you bomb that school with 200 kids, you're going to deactivate the nuclear bomb. Hmm. Um, do you, do you take the shot? If those are knowns, that's the premise, then yeah, you kill the 200 kids. Mm. Two kids are gonna get nuked anyway, and those are kind of decisions. I mean, that's an obvious one, but you have the grayer decisions. Well, how, you know, if you if they have, you know, a force that's gonna attack you, and there's you know a hundred kids within that force because you're using you're using human shields, do you blow them up? You know, mm. I mean, sometimes the answer has to be yes. Now, is that a, that's not a is that a immoral decision? No, probably not. It's probably amoral. Yeah. You know, something you got to do. Mm-hmm. And that. I think that's, that's my, I guess that's what I really should articulate is I'm not really making a moral judgment about it. I'm just saying it's not moral. It's not good. And so mm-hmm. I don't like the just war. Yeah. I think really, it's I think you're, Yeah. It's what like, you're kind of getting at is that most of the decisions that you make in war are very utilitarian, uh, essentially, you know, you have to weigh, weigh lives and that is never just, it's never a just thing to, to weigh the cost of lives. Um, but it's utilitarian. You have to essentially. Right. It's, it's really a self-defense. I mean, mm-hmm. if somebody breaks into to, to our, my house uh, tonight, I'm going to shoot that person if I have the ability to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that person may die. That's not a good thing. Yeah. You know, uh, that's not a just I mean, is it I guess maybe I'm maybe I'm reading too much in a just thing, but I think it's a justification for it. And of course, you know, it would be a, it would be a self-defense defense of others justification. Mm-hmm under the law so as a legal argument i agree with them but i i just don't i just kind of bristle at the the just war theory if it's seen as 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 something morally good hmm. and that makes sense yeah i, I do that, that, that does make sense Sounded too much I, I feel like i'm i said it too 
clear cut. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want anybody, our listener to think that I think (laughs) that anybody was wrong. Um, when they, they when they served our country and they and they uh, you know fought in those 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 conflicts and those wars, I'm not saying that at all. Yes, that our listener knows that. I just mean as a moral philosophy. I don't think you can say any war was good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Moving on from from just war, that was a good discussion. Um, he goes on to talk about you know why the state even exists, and it's really foundational. Uh, or original sin is really foundational in that. He says original sin is the most important fact about us. Some are saved, some aren't, but all are sinners. And so, in the absence of government, we cannot help behaving badly because we are terrified of being robbed, assaulted, or you know murdered. And so, we rationally make a preemptive strike. You know, we're, we're so afraid of our neighbors that we will attack them first. And then they'll have the desire then to attack us first the next time. And it's an endless cycle. Um, But he says that the government breaks this cycle. Uh, We won't be afraid of others if we know that they are afraid of the law. When the fear of each other is removed, we can cooperate peacefully. So relatively good earthly states are not just, but well-ordered. The drive towards violence and robbery is never truly gone, just counteracted. Any state can be well-ordered so long as there is peace, agreements are kept, laws are observed, and affairs are predictable. Um, so, so an interesting discussion of, you know, sort of the nature of humanity there and that, you know, we, you know, inherently will do bad things to each other if there's nothing stopping us um, because we're, we're all afraid of each other. But then removing that fear is the government's job. We have to be afraid of something bigger than us in order to get us to, to cooperate, essentially. Do you agree with that? I agree, like, somewhat. I do agree that in the absence of good institutions, a lot of bad things will happen. I don't know if it's just because that we are all inherently afraid of each other. Um, I do think that there are some people that would inherently do some bad things, um, but I don't know if that's true of everybody. Yeah, I, I think I think his overgeneralization of the sinners. I think we're all sinners, but not all of us are killers. Mm-hmm. Not all of us are thieves, uh, and and I think, uh, but I think a, a, a high enough percentage, a high enough number, mm-hmm. uh, would be a problem without some sort of ability to control them or deter them. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing across the country with this decriminalization nonsense. Um, some shop owner was just stabbed to death yesterday, oh. I think. Somebody stole a wig from him. He chased him outside. The guy stabbed him. Mm. Um, you know, just a sad, you know, be, be, and probably chased him because the cops will never come. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was in California, somewhere in Los Angeles or something. But yeah, if, if you don't have, you, you, I think he's right in the sense that if you do not have a system of government uh, you have you have worse than anarchy because then you, you people will have to band together to protect themselves, and I don't know if preemptive strikes are uh, automatic because you know if you have yeah if if you, if you have neighbors, you're not going to go out to try to kill them mm-hmm. before they kill you unless you know, you know unless they say hey I'm going to come over tomorrow and kill you yeah okay well then maybe you'll go out tonight and kill them it's like if there was a total collapse of the government I don't think I would go next door to the apartment over there. And like beat up my neighbor because I'm afraid of him coming in and robbing my stuff. Like, I don't think that would happen. Like, even if he wasn't afraid of the law, I don't think I would preemptively attack him, you know, just on the the, the belief that he would attack me first. Correct. Now, but you're going to want to arm yourself. Yes. Right. I'd be prepared to defend myself, but I wouldn't go out and, and attack people. Correct. And that, that would be the default. Mm-hmm. There would be less cooperation. And, and then you'd have, you know, roaming gangs. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that would be a big problem, that, you know. So, so if you have a breakdown, but he he's right in the justification for uh, a civil government because if you don't have that, you will have anarchy and and uh, violence 
and theft would uh, create more. You know, the, the mm-hmm. retaliatory, retaliatory strikes will happen, you know, and, and you know, and I, I shudder to think what would happen if somebody in a let's say let's say there's a societal breakdown and then somebody attacks one of you boys. I'm not going to be concerned with my eternal damnation, you know, <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm a pretty cerebral guy and I'm not exactly Mr. Violence or anything, but that's true of any guy, you yeah. know, and then you're going to have, and then what happens when I, uh, when I take action after that mm-hmm. in, a, in a lawless society, well, then they're going to have to take recruit, you know, some sort of, and I, and if I, if I have a retaliatory attack, I have to be aware like the, the ancient Greeks did aware of, uh, what their people would do to mm. retaliate against me. And so then it's okay. Uh, we're killing all the guys over the age of 16, selling everybody else into slavery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to Carthage or whatever it was, you know, I mean, it's uh, uh, so, so that's what happens mm-hmm. and eventually you'll get there. Mm. Bleak moving on. <laughs> Uh, Augustine then goes on to talk about, you know, what's the individual's role in things. It says the individual must leave politics to the powers that be as they are ordained by God and disobedience, except by the conditions described earlier, is an affront to God. As the right to govern is not personal to those people who are in charge, just that God created rulers whose power is part of the providential order. So then he brings up, you know, the the quote, um, one of, I guess, Augustine's most famous if justice is absent, what is a state other than a large and successful band of robbers? I'm going to read from the book here. Uh, he quoted with pleasure the brave or foolhardy response of a captured pirate to Alexander the Great. Asked by the great conqueror what he meant by his pir- piracy, he replied that he meant just the same as Alexander, and that he took it amiss that just because Alexander had many ships and he had only one, he was condemned as a pirate and Alexander was praised as a hero. Augustine's view seems rather to be that states are by nature magna latrocinia but that under their protection, the limited goods of this earthly life can be pursued. Of course, Magno uh, Latrachenia is that idea of of a band of robbers. You know, by nature, states are that. um, But then if we order them well enough, then we can kind of, you know, temper that down, essentially, and pursue the earthly goods. So do you think that that states are inherently um, a band of robbers? Mm, Depends on the state. I mean, the... the, 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 um... I think if you have uh, back to the Greeks mm-hmm. uh, or fast forward past St. Augustine, if, if the government is a creation of the people um, and it's with our consent, um, then no, it's not a band of robbers because we all agreed to these terms, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so that that's the justification for a government within a Republic with, with actual citizens that have a right to govern themselves um, and then you kind of cede a certain amount of authority to to the government itself mm-hmm. uh, by participating in it. And uh, was it is it Locke that had that kind of contract uh, view so. uh, of the government? I think he was a big property rights guy, but um, but that that type of idea that if you're that the government's only legitimate if it's if it has the consent of the people. Otherwise, it is just a, a large gang of criminals stealing stuff. Yeah. Is is Putin's oligarchy to give a good an easy example? Is that um, is that is that any different than just a criminal syndicate writ large? I don't think so. I think it's pretty much that's what it is. I mean, isn't it really just a crime syndicate with um with uh with a lot of oil and natural gas? Mm-hmm. Probably, yeah. I mean, 
It really is. I think it's really dependent on how much power the government has. It's like what you were talking about. If, if the government is willing to cede some power to the people, essentially, you know, hold themselves accountable to the people, then they are less likely to be just a huge band of robbers. Well, the government, I mean, well, my, my fundamental point is that the government doesn't cede the power to the people. The people are the ones yes. that have the power mm-hmm. and, and the only legitimate authority over themselves. Mm-hmm. And we cede the, that power to the government. Yes. Voluntarily or not at all. I guess what I'm thinking about is, you know, what essentially the United States has become with all of its bureaucracy. It wasn't that we ceded the power for there to be a million different, you know, departments for every single thing. It was just that the the government decided that themselves and and kind of, you know, made those departments. No, I think you're wrong. You think uh, so? Yeah, because every department was uh, was created by an act of Congress and mm-hmm. we voted for those yeah. people and we, we haven't repealed those damn laws. So, I mean... Um, you know, we could end social security tomorrow, you know, if our representatives would vote to end social security tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And if, if thousands and thousands of us rose up and, and, and all across the country and demanded the end of social security, which is never going to happen, of course. Um, and, and they, they clearly knew a majority of the citizens wanted to end social security tomorrow. They would vote out. They would vote against it. So there, there's some accountability. I have some hope with regard to that. But every every federal state agency, every agency has been created uh, indirectly by a vote of the people, by the consent of the people, because we voted for the representatives and they enacted it, and it's been created by them. These 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 the bureaucracy didn't spring up on its own. Mm. Every one of them was created by a law passed by Congress. Every That's one true. of them. That is true. Now there's some judicial decisions. Hmm. That have created um, that have created legal rights or procedures or limitations on individual freedom that were not with the consent of the governed, um, and because they are not accountable. Once they're in, they're in for life, and there's no accountability. That uh, the only thing we can do is impeach them, which we need to do more of. More <laughs> judges need to be impeached. Good thoughts. Uh, we we don't impeach them. Mm-hmm. They, they, we don't we we don't vote them out. We don't impeach them. And it should be a regular occurrence. Somebody should be impeached every year. There should be, there should be, the, 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 they should, they should figure out the the bottom 5% of all judges and start knocking them off. I mean, not killing them, you know, impeaching them. I mean, what, why are we letting the lo- lowest performing people stay in office? Mm-hmm. But that's a whole different argument. Yes. That's, that's another discussion. Moving back to Augustine. Uh, Alan Ryan says that Augustine did not praise tolerance or religious liberty. He thought that people should be coerced into Christianity by the state but uh, there should be no extreme coercion or the death penalty, of course, if you're if you're not a Christian. Um, he does say, though, that Augustine's ideas led to later arguments for tolerance. If the state is to be a, is to care for externals, then the internal theological questions must be settled elsewhere. Uh, the idea that the church is a voluntary organization for worship in common and discussion of faith, while the state is coercive in a non-voluntary organization for regulation of external matters. Uh, the dangerous novelty in this, as Alan Ryan describes it, was the extension of coercion uh, from enforcing uh, observance uh, into the suppression of heresy. And this allowed Christians to persecute each other with clear consciences. So it's not the idea that, you know, the dangerous idea wasn't that we shouldn't be tolerant. It was dangerous and that we should be not tolerant to the extent that we are, you know, killing people who do not follow the, the, the correct faith, um, is what Alan Ryan says. I'm going to end this section by reading from the book. Uh, the acceptability of coerced orthodoxy to Christians relied almost entirely on Christ's injunction to compel them to come in. 
and the Augustine who strained to read Christ's injunction to turn the other cheek in a metaphorical and spiritual sense in order to permit Christians to serve in the military with a good conscience, now strained to read the cogere intrare of the parable of the reluctant wedding guests in the most literal sense to explain why earthly rulers might, indeed must, compel orthodoxy among their subjects. It was a dangerous legacy. Not only did it place the Christian subject at the mercy of his ruler's ideas about what was and what was not heresy, it made it inevitable that the church would claim to police the Christian ruler's orthodoxy, and inevitable that rulers would resist. And that is sort of his introduction into part two. Uh, this whole book is split into four parts, and part two is the Christian world. So we'll see how the, the church interacts with the state when you are enforcing a correct religion and what that has to do with heresy, um, which he says stems sort of from Augustine's beliefs here. So what do you think of this, this chapter overall, this chapter five about uh, St. Augustine? Uh, again, um, I, lo- I really like the author. Mm-hmm. I think he's a great job summarizing stuff. He seems to be a history buff too. He loves to give long introductions uh, of the historical context of, of these thinkers. So uh, I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, 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 the... Um, the the thought of saint augustine with with regard to the you know the, his conversion the neo uh Platon, what do they how do you neoplatonists neoplatonists uh and and that kind of duality you know where where you where you know plato talks about well you can't uh you know see perfection i guess and it's kind of like this veil mm-hmm. and uh and saint augustine using that to say well there's a there's there's the divine perfection and knowledge of things and we just don't see everything and and we are fallen creatures i I agree with a lot of that Mm -hmm. i think that's um an interesting interesting way to look at the world i i do agree with some of what he's saying about you know there's certain phases uh uh, not phases but certain areas of of government that are are not really the business of uh a religious or a moral view you Mm -hmm. know um, uh, but that you have to have certain things that you object to on a moral basis certain um uh things that the you know, line you won't cross now where you draw that line i don't know but uh I, and he certainly doesn't know but uh it, yeah an interesting discussion well written uh, and um and raises a lot of these fundamental issues that i, I know we're going to be exploring more in practice mm-hmm. practical with future thinkers you know you get more the, like they say the devil's in the details and he's talking about you know um uh you know, how, how to have a just society kind of in a 10,000 foot level. Yeah. Uh, really, you need something that, that sets up a system. Um, but I, I, I do agree with like a lot of what he's saying is that you need this, you need a government or a system um, that encourages just and moral behavior. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, um, and, and I think you hit on something or he, he says that you, know, you have to encourage moral behavior or else you get more immoral behavior. It's almost like a, and it's very similar to like setting up a plan to lose weight, you know, which I'm struggling with now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pack a lunch, you know, have, have a plan for the week uh, of what you're going to eat and you're more likely to stick to the diet and do mm-hmm. better and have an exercise plan that you'll that you, that you already have planned out and expectations of it. So if you have expectations of doing the right thing, you're going to do the right thing. And if you have a government that that says, okay, you know, we're not going to steal from each other or else bad things might happen, you, you, you're not forcing people to be moral. Mm-hmm. You're, encouraging, you're encouraging them to and you're punishing bad behavior. And so you will end up 
with a more moral and just society. Mm-hmm. If you if you encourage people to um, to study and and to work hard and and to be frugal, you're going to have a, a more just society. Uh, similar to uh, if you're an individual and you value th- those things, you're gonna you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have more moral value yourself, and so mm-hmm. they, you can extrapolate to to the general from the individual in, in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I think he's absolutely right about that. And then, then, then how do you go about doing it? Mm-hmm. You know, that, and I think I think one thing that's kind of you know implicit in that that Augustine didn't really describe, but it's like the consistency there. Right. You have the threat of the punishment and you know that if you break this law, if you do this wrong thing, you will be punished and you know exactly what the punishment will be. And, you know, the process of going through with that and all things like that. And so I think, you know, because, you know, prior to this, you have, you know, you're tortured to, to condemn yourself and you were you were put to death, you know, immediately or, or whatever the case may be. And it varied very much depending on what part of the world you were in. But if you're in one state that has a consistent system and you know that if if my neighbor breaks the law or if I break the law and, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, we know what will happen. And that kind of plays into his, to his idea about, you know, um, what the government does to, to restrict the natural tendency towards towards evil or towards, you know, preemptive strikes. You know, if we know that things are consistent among everybody, then we know that we don't have anything to fear so much from everybody else because the, the rules are consistent and there are consistent punishments when broken. That consistency, I think, is key. Yeah, and and also it it, it would d- dissuade you from taking justice in your own hands, which mm-hmm. uh, is a is a weird variable in a just society because if, if, then you have the the uh, you know the Hatfields and McCoys, the feuds, you know the blood feuds and all that stuff, and it, it's important to have, and that that was that was a a thing that I was struggling with when my end of my career as a prosecutor. Um, that there was such a delay between what people did and, and the consequences for it, it almost lost all effectiveness. Um, and, and so, um, you know, because we give people probation and mm-hmm. then, and for, for a burglary, we give people probation and then they'd violate probation and commit some other crime. And then we give them a different type of probation, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of shock time. And then, and then we do this and we do that and go to these treatment programs and all this and that. But by the time they've run out of options, um, it's like, it's almost counterproductive to put them in prison. That was always the argument. Well, it's been four years since they did the crime. You know, what's the point, you know, why, why, why do that? You know, what we should have done at the beginning is give them six months in jail, you know, or, or 60 days in jail, you know, and, and just have an immediate punishment that they feel not immediate. I mean, you know, of course they're, they should have procedural protections mm-hmm. on it's the next day, but, um, and the system needs to work faster uh, while preserving those constitutional rights because that's a big problem because you can't get a case resolved in under a year if there's mm-hmm. any sort of dispute. And that's uh, it is horrible for everybody involved. But, you know, at some point, you just got to say, okay, you're just going to get some punishment. And, 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 our, and our current criminal justice system does not have any value, does not place any value on punishment for mm-hmm. the sake of punishment. Um, and it has, uh, has no value on deterrence because uh, really there's four purposes for the criminal justice system. One is, uh, is well, maybe five. One is restitution, you know, make, it, make the victim whole. So if you stole something, you got to give it back. Mm-hmm. The other is punishment just for the sake of punishment. The other is deterrence to deter future conduct from that person or another person. And the another one is incapacitation. You lock them up, they can't do anything mm-hmm. except each other or the guards and then the 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 one that, that the fifth one so i said four there's five 
the fifth one, which is the overarching guide, uh, the, 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 the North star for our current criminal justice system is rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. That's all we care about is rehabilitation. And, and just like I want the department of defense to change the department of war, I want the department of corrections to be changed back to the Bureau of prisons, you know, because <laughs> uh, we're not reforming people. We're not rehabilitating people. We're just stringing them along. And we ought to just say, okay, we're going to have just punishments and maybe, you know, in even shorter prison and jail times, shorter, succinct, done, get in, get out. And then when you get, if you go back in, you get, you get a longer sentence, but the rehabilitation social work tendency across all spectrums and all jurisdictions, including this one has gotten completely out of control. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I think St. Augustine would, would agree if he saw our current system that, that we're not uh, encouraging uh, lawful and uh, moral behavior. We're encouraging uh, immoral, uh, evil behavior. I and mean, it kind of goes system. back to the, to the free will discussion earlier. You know, we're so focused on, we have to make sure that, you know, this doesn't happen again societally and, and you know, everything like that, that we're not, you know, focused at all on. Maybe they did it because they wanted to. And they deserve punishment for that. Yeah. And, and the default should be, the default mm-hmm. should be, they did it because they wanted to, mm-hmm. because they did it. So they should have to prove that they didn't want to, but you know, if, if you steal, um, steal a bunch of merchandise from Walmart, you stole it because you wanted to steal it. Okay. And, and maybe you also have a drug habit and maybe you have some mental illness stuff too. Okay. But that you should have to uh, establish that as some sort of mitigation of your sentence rather than as a society say, well, you know, most people just do it because they have these problems. No, we should just say you stole it. People steal stuff because they want it for mm-hmm. whatever purposes. And they wanted to steal it and they wanted to take it without paying for it. And, and one of the, the hardest lessons that I've learned in my legal career was, you know, I, when I became, came out of law school as a public defender and, and, uh, and I used to believe that, you know what, if you just gave these people a job, you gave them an opportunity, they wouldn't turn to crime, you know, because they could get a job and they could support themselves. And that was false, 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 because I met them uh, one after another, after another, and they would not, they, they were short-term thinkers. They would think, okay, I'm waking up today. Uh, um, how am I going to get laid and how am I going to get stoned? Uh, and those are the two main things they're going to do. Uh, and if they had an opportunity to get something for free, uh, meaning steal it from somebody else, they were going to do that. Mm. And that's a significant portion of the population. Just, to, to, just uh, it, it will, will uh, only think about what's in their short-term interest and never think long-term that they're uh, and and most of success in life is the grind. We can talk about that later. You know, you just day in and day out, you just work towards uh, a goal, kind of like the weight loss thing that I'm failing at. Uh, you just gotta, you gotta do the grind. I'm not doing the grind, so I'm not successful. And that's, that's true of a lot of people. And, and, uh, and um, you know, that the, uh, I remember talking to a guy uh, who's guilty of sin. So he's pleading guilty. And I said, okay, before you're sentencing, you got to get a job. I said, you know, I said, McDonald's is hiring. I don't care where you get a job, but if you have a job, I know this judge and this judge doesn't want to put anybody in jail or prison. If they're, they're, they're 
working and they're supporting themselves on the outside. There's no reason to put them on the inside. So I can almost guarantee you probation if you just get a job anywhere. And he says, I, I, I don't want to work at McDonald's. I can't work at McDonald's. That's embarrassing. I, I, that's beneath me. I said, oh, okay. And um, I can't remember what happened with that particular guy, but I was just so struck by that, that you, you would risk going to prison rather than work uh, at McDonald's. I mean, you could have quit the next day. Once the sentencing is done, it's done. You're, you got probation, quit, you know, <laughs> get a job that you think is worthy of you. You convicted felon, <laughs> um, you know, so it, but that's the mentality. You know, they, they won't do it and they don't want to do it. And that should be understood by people as the main motivating factor of people who commit crimes. They, they commit violence because they want to hurt people. They want to, they like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you meet enough people that like it and they want to hurt people, you understand, oh, okay, that's who we're dealing with. And then you, you, you adjust accordingly. But mm-hmm. people don't understand unless they've been a victim of a crime. And even then they seem to, to not quite figure it out. They want to believe. They, nobody wants to believe that there are evil people in the world. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to believe it. And uh, now uh, St. Augustine had the view that we're all evil people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, I'm a believer that we're all sinners. We're all capable of evil. Mm-hmm. But we, we all have the ability to control it and not to sin because we don't constantly sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we sin when we, when we give into the temptation or the, the vice or the, or, or weakness, or we decide to do it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and all of us have the ability to, to, all of us have the ability to not sin again for the rest of our life. Yeah. I, I believe that, but I also believe that all of us are going to sin, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sometime before we die, you know, because, because we're, uh, we're not perfect. Yeah. Uh, we should try to, and we need to have a society that encourages that and respects that. And, and the more we encourage it among our, from our, with ourselves and with each other, uh, the better off we'll all be. And I think St. Augustine would completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What are your thoughts? I, I agree. I think that was, that was a lot of things to, to, to think about. Um, but yeah, no, no, I do. I do agree. I think we have gotten away um, definitely from the idea that, you know, people sin because they want to. People do bad things. They break the law because they want to. We need to get back to that a little bit. We need to realize that people do bad things because they want to. Um, and we need to, to recognize that. Absolutely. That's all the thoughts that I have. Um, this this is a very long episode, so we might want to start start winding down soon. Do you have anything else that you could possibly add? I think I missed your brother's soccer game. <laughs> <laughs> you might have. I'll have to check after the recording's done. This might be the longest episode we've ever done. Uh, I know the the previous record was like right at an hour and a half, and we might be pretty close or pretty over that. So we'll, we'll see. I think we're at a, an hour 40. Yeah, maybe so. Oh, I guess we should. for our listener. Well, we're, it's like a Joe Rogan podcast. Those things go on for three hours. People That's listen true. to that. I wonder how many people listen to the whole thing, though. Mm. You know, uh, who has three hours to listen to Joe Rogan talk to people? <laughs> I've not, I have not, well, it's not true. I've listened to a couple of them all the way through, but they were pretty rare. Yeah. Really compelling guess. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess we should go ahead and sign off. You can follow us on Twitter, of course, at ULMTD Opinions there on Twitter. I've been Adam Bishop. I'm still Mark Bishop. This has been Unlimited Opinions.
I have something that I have to turn in in 15 minutes. So oh, I no. probably go ahead. I, it's it's done. I just need to check it. It's a, it was a take-home exam. So probably in my best interest to, to, to sign off here. I'll let you go then. All right. Goodbye.